Hello, I'm Jonathan Charles, and this is Pocket Dilemmas, where Kerry, Laura, and I tackle political and economic questions facing the world today. As coronavirus continues its deadly march across the planet, more and more countries are shutting their borders. Even the EU Schengen area introduced border checks or closed borders altogether. Nobody knows how long the restrictions will last, or indeed if the borders are ever going to be as open as they were before. So, can open borders survive the pandemic? What does it mean for migration and the future of migration? What does it mean for the global economy? Those are all the questions that we'll be asking. What are pocket dilemmas? Are algorithms biased? Will robots take away your job? Do you trust cryptocurrencies? How do we bridge the pay gap? What is the future of poverty? This is Dilemmas at EBRD.com. For me, it's clear, seeing this up close, coronavirus has ended borderless Europe for the time being. EU leaders say this is temporary and the exception to the rule are lorries because they're fast-tracked to allow food and essentials to move quickly around the continent. That's a clip from the BBC's correspondent Gavin Lee in a report he did just last week inside Schengen. You know, I remember when the borders were opening uh, back in 1992 when the single market first came into existence and then we had the Schengen area. That was a complete game changer. Uh, for the way that the European Union operated. Uh, it really meant goods and people could travel much more freely, the four freedoms of the single market. And I remember the time before, as when I was the BBC's Europe correspondent, getting across borders could be a time-consuming uh, occasion. I mean, often you had to declare things you were, even within the EU, things you were carrying. I remember having to carry things when we were carrying equipment called carnets, and the carnets had to be signed at the border post. It could take a long time just to cross from uh, France to Germany, for example, in a way that has been absolutely imaginable in the years since 1992. Un absolutely unimaginable. I mean, it's hard to imagine uh, the before and after. So to see these border restrictions coming back, you know, is definitely a negative trend because also what it seems to be signifying is countries doing their own thing in a way that since 1992 has also been unimaginable, when everybody agreed they would work together as part of the single market. Uh, so very, very interesting times. Um, the World Migration Report, by the way, for 2020, showed that 270 million people in the world are migrants. Uh, they send home an amazing $689 billion. So 3.5% of the world's population are uh, migrants. As for migration within the EU, a staggering 22.3 million non-EU citizens living in the EU as of January 2018, according to official EU statistics. About 60% of personal remittances in 2018 were sent within the EU member states, and amongst the most dependent on remittances are Croatia, Bulgaria and Latvia, uh, all, of course, countries of operations of the uh, EBRD. Uh, here in the UK, where I'm speaking to you from, uh, from my own home, of course, as we all work from home, uh, in the UK, uh, there are 3.7 million EU nationals are residing as of June last year. So it's clearly a massive thing, isn't it, Kerry? Massive. And, you know, just to touch on a point that you just mentioned, you know, I grew up in a world where it, there were no borders. So I remember vaguely hearing about um, you know, the borders opening, you know, et cetera, when I was younger, but I've always grown up in the era of open borders. So it's even more shocking um, to see. But, you know, so in the EBRD regions, emigration is actually a key issue for us. 
So the rates in our countries have been higher than the global average and brain drain has actually been a, a consistent problem. So, you know, we've covered this quite thoroughly in our 2018, 2019 transition report. But an interesting fact that has always stuck with me from reading that report is around 10% of all people born in EBRD regions actually live outside of their country of origin. It's interesting you say they're growing up with uh, open borders. And, and actually, you know, if I think about it, I've completely forgotten up until recently what it was like to have restrictions on my movement. Uh, it's only in these past few weeks uh, that I'm thinking, you know, I can no longer get on a plane to go to a particular country with great heat. Uh, and that, that's what worries me is it was very quick to shut down. Open. How difficult will it be to open them up again? As, as we've been uh, mentioning with all those statistics, Kerry, you know, there's a lot of movement of people in different parts of the world. But what happens to them all now that that world is rapidly closing? You know, this is a surreal time where within the EU, at least, we have this paradox of what are in fact, uh, in fact, uh, closed open borders. You know, I never thought I would hear those words uttered together, closed open borders. So everything and everyone at the moment seems to be absolutely staying still. You know, we're all uh, getting used to not wandering more than 500 meters from our homes. Exactly. Staying still and hopefully staying at home too. Um, yeah, it, you know, you're right. It's just really, it's really surreal. It feels like we're actually living in a movie. And in a sad way, you know, repatriation has become this new kind of trendy, sad form of migration in the last couple of months. So you have these governments who are chartering flights to bring their European uh, citizens back home. You also have people choosing to actually go back home to isolate with their families. Um, and you also have, you know, these internal migrants. So maybe not leaving uh, their country's borders, but leaving the places that they work, like those in India who face huge health risks walking hundreds and hundreds of miles while starving uh, to get back to their villages because of these nationwide lockdowns, meaning they have actually no work in these cities anymore. And then I'm sure you've seen these shocking videos and pictures of these migrants being sprayed with what looks like fire hoses um, full of, you know, dis disinfectant, uh, which is like, you know, some sort of compound of bleach as they cross these areas to go back home. Um, it's shocking. And then you have these refugee camps in, uh, in Greece what happens when the pandemic hits hits their camps? It's um it's something that we're all kind of waiting with bated breath. No, I mean these are again things that I never thought uh, I would see, uh, and especially in so quickly. It's hard, isn't it, Kerry? I think sometimes when you're in the middle of uh, an epidemic and all the impacts of that, it's quite hard to see what what is the future. You know, how is all this going to shape the face of migration in the post-pandemic world? So I think there are two questions that we really need to ask and try to answer. Uh, in this program, you know, will migration be a force for good in the future? Uh, are we going to resume uh, that particular route? And can open borders survive this pandemic and help the global economy recover? Because I, I personally find it very hard to imagine economic recovery without returning to some element of, of open borders. Absolutely. And these are two huge, important questions that you raise. You know, I believe that migration is a force for good, but I'm very biased. I am a migrant to the UK. <laughs> I'm very welcome you are here too. <laughs> Great. Um, you know, and as for open borders, you know, it's been this long debated dilemma of 
how many and what kind of immig immigrants to allow and live and work in a country. So those in favor of welcoming more immigrants often cite humanitarian reasons, while those in favor of more restrictive laws argue the need to protect native citizens. So it, this is not a new thing. It's, it's been going on you know, for, for decades, it seems. Well, if everybody listening is looking for a book to read while they're locked down, there is a, a very good one by Brian Kaplan. It's called Open Borders, The Science and Ethics of Immigration. He cites the work of Michael Clemens, uh, lead on migration at the Center for Global Development. Uh, and of course, we have Helen uh, with us, Helen Dempster, a little later on from the Center for Global Development. Now, Kathleen claims that uh, global freedom of movement would increase the gross world product by between uh, 50 and 150 percent. So massive gains that could be gained uh, by that. If people could travel as freely as commodities and capital do, uh, they could produce vastly more stuff, he says, ensuring that almost everyone ends up better off. Restrictions on immigration, Kaplan writes, are the equivalent of chucking away trillion-dollar bills and leaving them on the sidewalk. But some see migrants as hurting the most vulnerable, of course, uh, pushing them out of already low-paid jobs. This is Pocket Dilemmas, the podcast which explores the political and economic problems shaping our world. Review us on iTunes, email us at dilemmas at ebrd.com, follow us on Twitter at ebrd. And we have a great lineup of guests who are going to help us solve today's dilemma, uh, particularly that central question, can open borders survive the pandemic? So today we're meeting on everyone's favorite platform these days on Zoom. I'm never off it. You're never off it, I know. Well, I equally use House Party, so I think there's a debate on... That's because you're young. I mean, you should get on it, Jonathan. It's actually, it's quite fun. It's quite spontaneous. Um, anyway, so... I don't know whether they allow people... To oh, nonsense. When we're back together in, uh, in close contact, I'll show you how to use it. It's, um, it's great. Okay, very good. So <laughs> we, have, we have Savat Garai Aksoy, who's our principal economist working on migration issues, and Helen Dempster, who's the assistant director and senior associate for Policy and Outreach for the Migration, Displacement, and Humanitarian Policy Program at CGD, or the Center for Global Development. Welcome to both of you. Um, we're doing plenty of social distancing here, meeting on Zoom, which is great. Um, so, you know, we'd be really curious to know, what are your five seconds uh, on this issue? Can open, can open borders survive the pandemic? And Savat, you want to give us your five seconds? Um, sure. Uh, thanks, Gary. So my, my short answer is actually uh, no way. And, and the reason is that, uh, so let's remind, let's remember the, the open border principle. So open border principle argues the following, free movement across borders would greatly increase individual freedom and allow millions of uh, people to escape poverty and oppression. But in today's world, uh, what we actually see is completely different. Only about 15% of the world population is benefiting from uh, liberal visa policies or let me put it differently, about only three quarters, about three quarters of all country pairs in the world are, are visa restricted. So for example, if you are a citizen of the UK or the US, you are free to enter about 106 countries. So your world is actually pretty big. Uh, if you are a citizen of Pakistan, on the other hand, only about 25 countries will let you in without a visa. These numbers mean that a vast majority of people in the world are already facing restrictions while traveling to other countries as tourists, business travelers, or, or immigrants. Of course, the citizens of wealthy countries have generous uh, mobility rights or have gained uh, mobility rights over the last two decades. 
but those very same rights for other regions have stagnated or even diminished in particular for citizens from uh, Africa. So I would say that open borders for about 15% of the, the world population are, are, are likely to survive the pandemic, but there will not be many changes for the vast majority of so open borders is relative. Um, that's great. Helen? Yeah, I would definitely echo what Sabat said um, with the classic academic answer that it depends what you mean by open borders. Um, obviously, it means a very different thing in the EU than it does in other areas of the world. And I think we've seen that the legal migration channels we do have admittedly didn't have robust enough health screening, and I think that will need to increase in the future. And the lack of sufficient legal migration channels has driven a lot of migration underground, which makes it impossible to conduct those kind of health screenings. So I think we would argue that migration isn't the problem and that migration needs to continue, um, especially if we want to see a lot of the economic gains we've seen so far. But we need to do better to regulate that movement, particularly through robust health screenings and better international cooperation on surveillance. Helen, let me ask you first. Do you think, you know, I personally, if I think about it, you know, I automatically think open borders are a force for good. You know, I think they did the economy in recent years globally. Uh, they have helped people make choices that were not available to them. Uh, they, they act as a pressure valve sometimes in certain situations. How would you see that, Helen, just as a generic idea? Uh, generally, yes, I would say freer and better regulated migration is a force for good. It obviously doesn't have to be entirely free movement, but I think we're far from the optimal level of migration now, which is having a huge economic cost. It's interesting, isn't it? Because if I think of free movement areas, of which the EU, of course, is uh, the traditional one that you could cite, you know, that's had a massive impact on changing the European Union since 1992. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And you see the same thing with some burgeoning. Um, Free, free movement areas, say in West Africa, there's some in the Pacific, some areas which are really benefiting from freer movement. But as Savat already said, most areas of the world don't get to benefit from that movement and that is really hurting us. Savat, what about you? Would you automatically think that open borders have been a force for good? Um, yes, absolutely. I mean, let's first uh, remember the main argument behind the open borders idea. It is, so the basically, the, the open borders principle suggests that migration rights should not be restricted simply based on the fact that you were born on the quote-unquote uh, wrong side of the map. So I have, I have this personal uh, experience for many years. I, I face travel restrictions because I originally have a Turkish passport. But all of a sudden, a couple of years ago, I got a British passport. And now it is the complete opposite. I can pretty much travel to any country in the world. Uh, however, I'm the very same person. I have the same years of education. I have the very same job. Uh, but the main difference is the passport I carry while traveling. Um, and this is this is this is one simple example. But hundreds of million uh, millions of people also face the same issue. They live in countries they didn't necessarily choose, and they could only escape their fate if only a visa officer from the first world government would allow them to immigrate. And and, and just to be clear, millions of people currently live in poverty, not because they are unable to be productive workers, but there are no opportunities for them. So for example, just one simple example, in the age group of 25 or older, female labor force participation varies between 15 to 35% in the main migrant origin countries in the Middle East and Sub-Saharan Africa. This means that corresponding welfare losses are actually huge even when allowing for the fact that home production is reduced when women enter 
in the labor force. And, and, and migration restriction not only harm potential migrants, but also impose losses on destination countries. Um, many well-identify and executed uh, academic studies uh, show that migrants contribute more in taxes and social contributions than they receive in benefits. Migrants would uh, work in age population and increase the labor market flexibility. They contribute to technological progress, innovation, and skill complexity of countries' exports. It's just a new, uh, just to name a few. And, and it's important to emphasize that the benefits of open borders go far beyond purely uh, material gains. Many potential migrants live in countries which lack uh, basic human rights, such as freedom of speech, religion, and property rights. And millions of people are living in undemocratic societies. So in my view, it is open borders are force for good, and it's completely complete unfair that immigration restrictions forbid people to live and work where they wish purely, uh, uh, where, where they would like to live, and it's just purely based on exogenous birth circumstances. Savat, so, all super interesting points, and you know, open border proponents always talk about some sort of natural order that, you know, the way that migrants would then redistribute wealth, wealth across the economy, but what about the argument about the local labor force? So do migrants actually push out some of the most vulnerable when it comes to jobs? And actually, Helen, I'll, I'll direct this question to you. Yeah, so it's a really tricky question. Overall, the evidence would say no. So that migrants tend to complement native workers and that they do jobs that locals don't necessarily want to do. Um, we're seeing that a lot in the current crisis, things like care work and fruit picking, they're the jobs that are taken by migrants. But of course, there are always small numbers of locals who are going to compete with immigrants for those skills in the short term. And I'm not going to pretend that there is zero negative impact from migration. But overall, the impact to workers is positive. So many other locals owe their jobs to the existence and extent of industries that depend on immigrants. So going back to that previous example, if immigrants can pick fruit, then that makes you know, the availability of more middle management positions open to locals. So I think we would argue that the problem is not migration, but the lack of support to help workers adjust, gain more education, gain more skills to be able to progress up in the labor market. Do you think that, mi that migrants push out some of the most vulnerable when it comes to jobs? Or, or do you think that, um, do, you, do you agree a little bit with Helen? I think I, I agree with Helen. The, 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 there is no consensus on the impact of uh, migration on natives employment or inequality. If anything, what we actually see is that there are distributional negative impacts, but on average, the immigration or immigrants do not negatively affect uh, natives' uh, labor market outcomes or inequality among natives. Um, so I think it's just a miscommunication between the reality and the, and the perception among natives. Obviously, migration is not always a plus for some countries. There are many countries that we have in the EBRD regions of operations. Uh, where they've actually been harmed by brain drain, by emigration of people. Do you think this very strange situation that we're, we're in now might actually be good for some countries uh, because people won't be able to get out. They will have a chance of retaining more of their homegrown talent uh, by restricting migration because of this rather odd world we're in at the moment. Helen, what do you make of that? Uh, oh, it's, it's a really tricky argument to make. I would think overall, no, I think the negative impact, particularly on the economic side to these countries is going to far outweigh any potential gain you might see from a reduction in brain drain. I mean, these countries are already being hit by a massive loss of trade and other economic activity. 
And as already mentioned, as their migrants are going to be losing their jobs abroad, they will return, they will stop sending home remittances, which will reduce the development of the country overall. I mean, reflecting on it, there's maybe one small silver lining in that elites in a lot of these countries often try and move abroad to contribute their skills, or particularly uh, seek treatment, medical treatment abroad. And this crisis might force them to try and invest in some of their home systems to increase the development of those systems long term. But I still think overall, no, the negative impact is going to be far more serious. So that, do you think there's an upside in this for countries which have large amounts of emigration? My answer will be no, because eventually all these uh, immigration uh, restrictions will be lifted. And, and when we look at the immigration patterns and immigration rate in the EBRD regions a couple of years ago, what we actually found that about 10% of all people who were born in the EBRD regions live outside of their country of birth or citizenship. So people, there is that, this kind of suggests that there's a systematic issue across EBRD countries in the sense that people would like to leave. Immigration uh, uh, intentions are, migration intentions are very high in EBRD countries. And then when we, when we basically looked at the, the factors shaping these migration patterns or decisions, we actually found that Inequality of opportunities is one of the main drivers of emigration and income differences between the countries of origin and, and destination are the main factors. Unless EBRD countries basically address these issues, such as uh, by providing better access to amenities, by, uh, by reducing the uh, inequality of opportunities, even if you keep people for a couple of years in their countries uh, of origin for a few years in their countries of origin, they will eventually leave. And then the current evidence basically suggests that inequality in terms of potential earnings and then opportunities really shape the migration decisions in EBRD countries. So maybe they will gain some things in the short term, but in the long term, these people will leave eventually. That's, that's how I see this. Helen, I have a question for you. So you, you touched a little bit on, you know, elites and others are staying, you know, at home and in their country right now. Um, and perhaps this will cause them to be a little bit more introspective. So what are some of the policies that you think will come out of this? What are some of the policies that um, we'll need to protect most vulnerable in society, which often are migrants, both during and after the mm -hmm. pandemic? Well, I think the first and main one is that we need to treat everyone regardless of their migration status. So it's definitely self-defeating for us right now to exclude migrants from care or to discourage them from seeking it. So I think internal immigration enforcement needs to be temporarily suspended um, and health and immigration data should definitely be separated through firewalls. You're seeing some really interesting cases, particularly in Spain and Portugal, We've taken steps to sort of ensure that irregular migrants are able to access healthcare and are willing to engage with the state, which is creating more trust between those people and the state, which is obviously essential. And it's exactly the same with displaced people, particularly in low-income countries. So we need to protect them with more um, wash interventions and health treatments and more cash transfers, more testing and tracing. But crucially, one thing I would argue here is that there's been a lot of focus on people in refugee camps, which is obviously important. But we know that only a third of refugees actually live in camps, so we also need to be focusing on particularly these very dense urban areas. I think secondly, we need to look at visa status. So we work quite a lot in the Pacific, and we're interestingly seeing countries extending visa durations so that migrants aren't forced with this really awful catch-22 of having to relocate home against health orders or overstaying their visas and risking coming into contact with the state. 
Um, and I think thirdly, and we've argued this already, that we need to ease these restrictions as soon as possible. So obviously the health impact is important, but the economic impact is too. And every day that businesses and mobility are restricted, this has a disproportionately large effect on migrants and refugees around the world. And I think in doing this, we really need to keep quite a close eye on countries that are using this whole pandemic as an excuse to exclude migrants permanently and keep these borders closed. And we need to make sure we're calling out those leaders who are scapegoating vulnerable refugees and migrants throughout this crisis. Exactly. Do you think, Sevat, that all, all this is teaching us something about uh, the way we treat migrants uh, and the way we've taken migration for granted? Um, I think I think that's a very important question. Uh, but first of all, it is time to expose our minds to the painful realities migrants actually face. Um, and this is, actually many people have denied this for, for too long. So although living in lockdown is much better than living in a refugee camp, there are still many similarities between the two. The, our mobility is limited. I live in an apartment complex. Many people basically just, there's a quad, so many people just basically spend time, their times in quad. Only thing I, I do during the day, I just go go for a run and I just go to the supermarket. And these, I still feel uh, privileged compared to those who live in, in the refugee camps. And currently many people are facing risk of shortage of food and medical supplies, access to education and basic amenities are restricted. And, and unfortunately millions of people already have their, uh, already lost their jobs. And these are the basic realities of uh, refugees and many migrants who come from uh, poor countries. This pandemic first shows that the failure of governments to plan for and deliver services that meet that meet needs the needs of everyone. And secondly, I think it shows our collective uh, vulnerability in the sense that if the scale is shock, that can be a natural disaster, that can be a pandemic. If the scale of shock is beyond our control, we all feel powerless, and then there's not much we can do. And, and then that's how refugees and vulnerable uh, millions felt for many years. And, and I hope COVID-19 not only teaches us about washing our hands, but makes uh, people more sympathetic towards refugees and immigrants. So what can be the impact of the absence of, of migration then? Um, Helen, you kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier. So especially on some of these sectors that depend on these migrants. So for instance, the UK is left with these mass shortages of seasonal migrant workers who are for instance, working on farms, picking fruits, vegetables, et cetera. Um, and you know, they're crucial to sustain our local food supply. But then in other countries like Latvia, there are some uh, issues for the unemployed to come work on, on farms. What do you think about that, Sabat? Thanks, Kara. This, I mean, this is very important because what we know from the, at least from the economics literature is that migrants are vital uh, contributors to innovative and dynamic economies. And absence of immigrants will definitely hamper economic growth. And, and of course, the, the potential negative impact will be different for each country as migrants who skills, uh, migrants' contribution to the local economy uh, depends on the, the manufacturers, such as their own skill composition, age structure of the migrants, skill shortages in the local economy, and so on. However, I, I, was, I was reading a recent study um, and which, which actually shows that if immigration had been frozen in, in, in the UK in in 1990s level, uh, so if the number of migrants remained constant since 1990, the economy would be at least 9% smaller than it is now. So put differently, this means a real loss in gross domestic product of more than 180 billion 
funds over uh, last 15 years, basically. In Germany, uh, basically similar figures suggest that loss will be about 160 billion euros. Um, of course, these figures don't include the, the, the wider long-term benefits of immigration. But for example, what we know in the UK that immigrants are more likely to be uh, more likely to be entrepreneurs. They are more likely to uh, start their own company, create a, a patent, uh, patent, patent innovation. And in the US, what we know that immigrants are more likely to win uh, Nobel prizes or uh, Academy Awards, actually. So these are very important stylized facts, and and in my view, that in my view, uh, further controls on immigration can only slow growth and and worsen actual inequality. That's going to be a massive question, of course, going forward. Uh, let me remind you today's dilemma, of course, it's can open borders survive the pandemic? Uh, migration, as we've heard, is often connected to boosting the economy. Uh, and what will this halt to the movement of people do to the global economy? Uh, I think let's look at that, that bigger economic question. Helen, what do you think this will do to the global economy? Yeah, so I mean, the negative economic impact of this crisis is really only beginning to show. And as Savart already pointed to, estimates are varying dramatically on what this impact could be. It would, you know, from anything from a few million to massive amounts of trillions. And a reduction in movement is definitely going to play a part in this economic loss. So, as we've already said, I mean, border closures are preventing seasonal workers from getting to their usual place of employment, which is going to create food shortages. A lack of employment for migrant workers is creating a fall in remittances, which reduces development. And obviously, long term, businesses may not want to encourage movement for various reasons, which will have a compounding effect. And like Savart already mentioned, the flow of people spurs economic activity in less visible ways, too, through innovation and trade, investment and entrepreneurship. So I think we're going to see a huge international economic impact from the reduction in mobility. It's just really hard to say what that impact will be. And obviously, a lot of it depends on how soon these borders can be reopened and whether we're going to see an increase in migration back to previous levels or even increase, taking into account the fact that a lot of the people we've seen now labeled as key workers in many industries are the same people that six months ago we were calling low skilled and trying to exclude from our immigration systems. So I'm hoping that going forward, recognizing the incredible economic impact that migrants have had before the crisis and during the crisis, that we're going to open these borders, restore international mobility to even higher levels than it was before in order to see this increased economic impact. Helen, so, you know, there's a long term and growing body of evidence um, on migration and mobility that shows that migration is in large part related to the broader global economic, social, political and technological transformations that are affecting a wide range of high priority policy issues. What policies will we need to deal with in a post pandemic migration? Yeah, it's a great question. And one thing that the Center for Global Development is wrestling with at the moment. I think if we're going to be arguing for increased mobility post pandemic, we're definitely going to need to make sure that there are more uh, quarantine procedures, more surveillance protocols, more medical innovation, uh, quarantine systems, contact tracing, these types of policies to ensure that mobility can be done as safely as possible and satisfy the concerns of policymakers and the public alike. But as I argued just before, it will be essential to increase that mobility post pandemic. I and mean, we're still going to see the skills gaps that we saw before the pandemic and maybe even more so, particularly in sectors like healthcare and construction, hospitality, tourism and IT. 
We've long argued that we need to be increasing legal migration pathways in these five sectors in particular. Um, and the answer to combating pandemics and plugging these gaps is not less migration going forward. It's just managing it in a bit more of a systematic way. We've talked quite generally about uh, the impact of migration, but what's happening right now across the EBRD countries, the countries where we operate? Basically, I think EBRD countries, there are uh, two issues. Some of the EBRD countries are uh, net emigration countries, and some of the countries, some of the EBRD countries basically receive a lot of refugees. And, and of course, the, the policies uh, will differ for this set of countries. In terms of emigration countries, uh, probably those countries who, who basically um, need more workers, they can perhaps employ policies which, which will aim to attract highly qualified migrants to basically address specific labor shortages in their, in their countries that can be related to, for example, healthcare, healthcare industry. And, and for uh, refugee hosting uh, countries like Turkey, perhaps Turkey should employ policies that's gonna basically prevent disease to spread uh, further in, in the camps and among uh, low income, income people and particularly uh, among refugees. And I think overall, all EBRD countries could consider uh, tackling these problems by increasing legal opportunities uh, on a selective basis, basis depending on uh, local needs. All right, let me uh, remind you, you're listening uh, to our dilemma today. Can open borders survive the pandemic? That's what we've been discussing. I think it's important that we try and reach some conclusions now. We've had a, quite an interesting discussion, but you know, does migration matter? Can open borders survive this? Um, let, let's have a quick summing up. Uh, Helen, why don't you conclude uh, your thoughts well, for us? Well, very quickly, yes, migration matters. Yes, open borders can be a force for good. And I really hope that open borders are able to survive this pandemic. I mean, as I already said, I think they can't survive in the same way that they have today. But it's going to be absolutely essential that we increase legal, well-managed migration in the future, particularly to Europe, to plug some of those skills gaps I mentioned. So we're going to have to find a way to be able to regulate it in a way that satisfies the concerns of policymakers and the public going forward. Sebat? Um, I also agree. Uh, I think I think open borders will survive the pandemic, uh, but still we need to increase uh, the legal channels for, uh, for well-managed migration. And also, I think we should find a way to basically stop the growing discontent between the positive impact of, of migration, but increasing the negative perce perceptions about immigration. That is very important because although evidence suggests that immigration and migration has many positive, uh, many uh, immigration and migration benefit both uh, host countries and also uh, sending nations, the, the perception about uh, immigrants is still very negative, uh, probably, uh, I would say, across the world. So I think this is something to tackle as well. Okay, well, interesting thoughts. Well, Kerry, you and I, you know, have to ponder where we think we've ended up on all this. Has this helped, uh, you think, frame your thoughts? It's clear that there's a shift, you know, to the new equilibrium post-pandemic, um, both, you know, in migration, but also just the the broad context of, of the world. So you have you have this whole question of how we're going to treat immigra immigrants, you know, post COVID, but also just how fundamentally life is going to, to shift from what work will even look like. 
uh, and what policies we'll have to address um, you know, some of the most vulnerable in our society. So you know, it, helps, it helps me think um, through some of these issues as we're actually living this real life movie. Um, and I, you know, I hope that we as a human race look at this virus and we come together almost like we are uh, attacking an invader, an alien species, and we'll come together and realize that, you know, migrants or non-migrants, we are a human race and we need to start um, protecting each other and come together kind of as, as humans and not let these borders um, really dictate, you know, the, the, who, is, who is us and who is them. So I think, I think that's a really important um, conclusion that I have, but also, you know, post COVID, I, I worry that, that we will only focus on things um, having to do with the economy. And I don't want things like migration and things like the green agenda, which we didn't even really talk about in this podcast to really slip people's minds. So, you know, I, I hope we, I hope we keep, keep the most vulnerable in our minds going, going forward and not just focus on, um, on the economic repercussions of, of this of this virus. Yeah, we haven't really talked about the fact that uh, more and more migration may well be pushed as well by green issues or difficulties on climate uh, change in some countries. So those issues remain. And I think that's one of the difficulties in dealing with the timeline of this crisis. We have other timelines running as well on other crises simultaneously. Uh, and it's quite hard, I think, for policymakers to, to keep an eye on both and take decisions which actually are good for both uh, simultaneously. You know, I, I start where I ended. You know, I'm always a great believer that migration is generally a force for good. I think it has been good for economics. I think it's good for being a safety valve uh, in some situations in some countries. It's a pressure valve, you know, and, and it's right. I think that people should be able to pursue uh, freedom of choice as to where they're they want to live. So I think there are many good reasons why migration matters. I have a big concern, though. I, I think it's really easy to close down borders. I think it's much harder to open them up again. Uh, and, and I do worry that even when they open up again, they're really not going to be precisely the same as they were just a few months ago. I think opening may be a slow process. It may be uh, one that comes with many more restrictions particularly between now and when a vaccine is available uh, uh, which uh, on coronavirus, which as we know, you know, could be 12 months, 18 months away. We just don't know how long that's going to take. So I think this is going to be quite a, a medium term issue, this question of when borders properly open. I also worry quite a lot um, that economies will be smaller for the next couple of years. And that, of course, doesn't give migrants so many opportunities because if they go to countries, there aren't very many jobs necessarily that are going to be available for them. And they may not be that welcome to local populations who themselves are suffering quite high levels of unemployment. Uh, you know, so the whole backdrop may change. So there are many worries I have about where this is going. And I, and I also don't think you can't click a switch and suddenly borders are open again. I don't think it works like that in the current situation. Uh, and that, that really concerns me. I'd be interested to know what the audience thinks, actually. But uh, let me remind you, you've been listening to Pocket Dilemmas, the podcast which explores the political and economic problems which uh, shape our world. You can review us on iTunes. You can email us, dilemmas at ebrd.com. We would love to hear from you on this issue. And follow us on Twitter, of course, at EBRD. Big thanks to our guests, uh, Helen and Sevat. Very good of you to join us. Uh, until next time, see you. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by the EBRD. We'll be back soon with a new episode. 
In the meantime, send us your feedback, suggestions and ideas on dilemmas at ebrd.com. And remember, reviewing and rating us helps others to find us. Until next time.